do a series that we started next, uh, last week called Why in the World? And it really is centered around those moments in life when you just say, why in the world did that just happen? And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you that you can check it out via video or podcast on our app. We talked about how to deal with difficult people um, and how to navigate that because all of us, um, some of us are sometimes those difficult people, but all of us have had those moments where we've interacted with difficult people. Um, and when I was 10 years old, I um, had one of these why in the world kind of moments. I uh, grew up really poor and uh, we didn't have a lot of opportunities to take uh, kind of significant family vacations. But I remember this was one of the first big family vacations we were taking and we were going to the mountains, which um, as a Prior to being a 10-year-old, I had never seen the mountains before. I, I knew what they were, geologically speaking. I'd seen pictures, but I'd never actually been to them. And my mom surprised us and said, hey, I've rented a, a mountain cabin. We're going to go up, and uh, we're going to spend like a few days, and there's this little amusement park in the mountains, and I'm going to take you guys there. And so this was like a really big deal. And on the top of it all off, I got a sweet Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle t-shirt to like celebrate and commemorate the journey that we were about to embark on. And so me and my like 10-year-old um, husky glory self, right, because I was kind of processing the husky stage, which is just a, a really bad marketing idea to call a kid husky, period. And, but I was husky, and I had my shirt on, and we were on our way, and we make it to this cabin after driving for hours, and it was the craziest thing. It was the biggest hill I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I have a brother who's about a year younger than me, and we were like competitive, like most brothers are, and we see this really sharp, steep incline of a hill, and we're like, you want to race? Yeah. So we kind of start to race, and being the husky one, genetically speaking, my brother got the good-looking athletic genes, right? And I got what was left, which was the husky genes. And so the first time, he beats me. And I'm like the, the nerd of the family, and I'm like, you know what? Gravity works to my advantage in this thing. Like, I should be able to beat him. And so I'm like, I got you, buddy. Come back up one more time, all right? And so this time, I determined in all of my 10-year-old husky self to leverage gravity to the fullest, right? And I'm going to beat him. And I'm going to picture in my head me passing that finish line, my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt flapping in the wind, and, and it's victory, and so we both take off, and I'm so determined to beat him. I'm so in the moment of letting gravity thrust my body down that hill that I forget to move my feet, and I trip. And when I do, I go flying through the air. I hit the ground, and I start to roll. I'm still in the lead, and I'm rolling fast. And about that point, I'm realizing I'm starting to veer off of the road and onto the roadside. And I notice that I am rolling towards what appears to be a concrete kind of box-shaped object about two feet off the ground. And I'm like, okay, bad news, that's going to hurt. Good news, I stopped, right? Because I'm headed towards a road at the bottom of this hill that's pretty actively um, kind of trafficked. It, and I'm rolling fast. I hit the concrete block infrastructure only to discover you can actually catapult off of something like that. And so I did. I went flying back up in the air, landed back down on rocks, and beat my body till I finally stopped. I won, first of all. That's important. My brother comes up to me and looks at me, and he's kind of terrified looking. 
And he starts screaming, Mom, Mom, Mom. And my mom helps me up after coming down because I couldn't stand up. And my shirt was ripped to shreds. And so was my skin. And I had become one with the road. Like, literally. Just, it was kind of this, this bad moment that for years I carried scars from it. But what made the, the moment worse, this why in the world moment for me, happened the very next day when my family still went to the amusement park in the mountains. And I walked around hobbling about 25 feet behind them the entire day as a 10-year-old on my first ever family vacation. That was a significant moment. And I couldn't ride any of the rides. I was miserable. And the entire day, I just sulked completely bitter. And to top it all off, that sweet Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle t-shirt, completely destroyed. And it was like, why in the world did this happen to me? As an adult, I look back on those moments, probably the same way you do, and, and think, man, if that was the worst thing that happened to me, that was easy. Because being an adult, it's moments that we carry are far harder than just falling down a mountain or ripping up your favorite t-shirt or getting a little bit of blood or maybe some bruises. Being an adult, we deal with difficult moments that penetrate just bone and flesh, right? It goes to the very heart. Whether it's you're carrying your child to the emergency room and you're not sure if they're, because they're having trouble breathing, if they're going to make it. Or being invited into an office where your boss tells you, we've got to let you go. And you have to go home with that news. Or whether you're staring at a relationship that you thought was going to last forever and now it looks like it has a deadline. And it may not last this year. That we step into these difficult moments and they completely, completely make all the childhood struggles just kind of pass away. And in those moments, I think many of us, we cry out, why in the world is this happening to me? And I think sometimes we ask that it's a legitimate question. I think most of the time as adults when we ask that, what we're really saying is how in the world am I going to make it through? Because when you get hit in the side of your head with a life-changing moment like that, you just feel confused and disoriented and you're emotionally heavy and you're like, I don't know how to make it through. Getting up in the morning is hard and staying focused is hard because it's just constantly pressing in on you. And so while why in the world is a legitimate question, I'm not going to answer that question this morning. Because if you're in the middle of a difficult time period right now, you don't need philosophy. You don't need theology. I'm not discounting those. I think those are credible, credible things. I think if you're in the midst of a difficult circumstance right now, what you really want to know is how in the world do I make it through? Answer the why question later. Just give me the how right now. Because it's possible to navigate difficult moments and not just come out bitter. I believe it's possible to navigate difficult moments and come out better. And it's not something that I've discovered. It's not something that we just recently invented that you can buy on a bookshelf at Barnes & Noble or download it to a Kindle from Amazon. 
This is something that's been around for a while. It's, it's been something God's been transmitting to his people and, and guiding them for a long time. And, and what I want to do this morning is look at the life of one individual specifically who I think in, in a brilliant way demonstrates for us how we navigate the difficult moments to come out better, not bitter. In fact, by looking at this guy's life, I think that just taking this one snapshot of 10 verses that we can kind of see some practices and some, some principles that he repeats throughout his life that's really clear in this one snapshot of this, his life. And that by taking these four practices that any of the four can help you if you find yourself in a difficult place right now. But all of the four can, can literally transform you and bring you out better, not bitter. And so to kind of dive into that story, we're going to look at the life and a moment in the life of a guy named David who became one of Israel's greatest kings. He lived about 3,000 years ago and really kind of helped to serve and lead at one of the most pivotal times in the nation of Israel's history. He was a man who was not born into royalty. He, in fact, was born into a pretty healthy family that was very large, and he was the youngest. And so he was given the menial task, and he was a shepherd. He took care of the sheep, and he spent his days out in the fields. And yet in the midst of that, God was doing something, preparing something that would ultimately lead him to become one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. And it began with this moment that many of us, even if we didn't grow up in church, are familiar with the story of David and Goliath and how he defeats this giant. And he begins to get the attention of the current king of the day named Saul. And Saul is so impressed with his military strength and his, his fighting abilities that he says, marry my daughter. And, and David becomes the son-in-law of the king of Israel. And David is such an aggressive, such a, a loyal, faithful, like, soldier that he begins to win victories and songs begin to be sung about him that David kills tens of thousands of the enemies. And Saul just kills a thousand. And these stories and these songs about David's greatness and Saul's, eh, starts to cause Saul to get a little paranoid. And it starts to put a, a tension point into their relationship, which starts to fracture to the point that literally Saul tries to kill David because he's so bitter and angry and frustrated with him. And so David starts to live on the run. Because now this teenage boy is running from his father-in-law who's trying to kill him. And what makes it worse is his father-in-law leads an army. So that means it's the father-in-law and his army trying to kill you. And David is found, finding himself in places where literally in one scene, just the chapter previous to the one we're going to look at today, David is running around this side of the mountain while Saul and his armies are coming around this way. And Saul's closing in, and had Saul not been diverted because of a military issue back home, David might have died that day. And so we're going to pick up with that story in chapter 24 of the book 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, we would love to, to make one available, but we're going to have it on the screen behind you. And if you have the Encounter Church app, it's actually already loaded in there for you. So whether you want to click on Bible or the like sermon notes, message notes, You'll find that the 10 verses I want to kind of key in on this morning are already there for us to pull some principles out. But it begins in uh, chapter 24 with these words. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, which was the ancient Israel, like their biggest enemy, um, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. 
So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a, a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave, called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And in the midst of this story, there's so much happening. That, that's why I wanted to give you the backdrop. Because in the process of what's happening in these 10 verses, I think are, some, are four practices that you and I could, could literally put into practice today, dealing with difficult moments. So kind of go ahead and dive into them. The first is even in verse 1 and 2, it's, most of the things David's doing is subtle. When you, when you study the life of David, you start to pick up the things that he's doing in this chapter are patterns that he has. So it says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. And that he was in, verse 2, near the crags of the wild goats. Now, I recognize that those are probably two phrases you have not used this week, right? You're like, what are you doing? Well, I'm hanging out in the desert of En Gedi. And crags of the wild goats is probably a phrase you have never said your entire life and would be quite all right never saying it, right? That's just a weird statement. If your kids came to you and said, where have you been? Oh, I've been in the crags of wild goats. You would probably make a couple phone calls, right? Because you feel like there's something illegal about that. That just doesn't sound right. But here's what you kind of get a glimpse into. So the deserts of Engedi is about 35 miles from Jerusalem, which was where David had been living. 35 miles in the ancient world is a significant distance. And so David is incredibly isolated out in the middle of nowhere and to top it off in the desert. And it says that he was near the crags of the wild goats, which is the, the helpful kind of phrasing in there is the fact that it mentions wild goats. Because in the wilderness of Israel, um, they have mountain goats. And the thing that was kind of most impressive about the mountain goats of that region was the, the strength that they had to be able to climb mountain faces. And that these crags, these rocks would jut out from these large mountain and hill structures and these goats were so adept at just kind of managing even just an inch that they could hop from this point to this point to this point. And these incredible creatures. And so David has intentionally put himself in one of the most isolated and most difficult regions to get to. Because here's a large army pursuing him. 3,000 men pursuing David. And David... Is, is a fugitive on the run with just a, a, a few guys hanging out with him. 
And David demonstrates something that can be almost so subtle we miss it in our difficult moments. David demonstrates that one of the first things that you can do is you still have the power of choice. David chose En Gadi, and he chose this very difficult place to get to because it gave him a strategic military advantage. It doesn't matter if you have 3,000 men. If your 3,000 men have to be wild goats to get to where you are, you've probably got an advantage. David has leveraged his weakness and put himself into a place that's really hard to get to. And the power of choice is not just that David did this because he was a great military advantage. It's because David realized that in the midst of difficulty, one of the things that happens is you get overwhelmed with the uncertainty with the question marks. If you've ever walked through the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or you're processing a hard relational issue right now, it can feel like everything in your life is falling apart. And you feel like everything is just kind of out of your control. And that, that tends to mark difficult times for us is that we feel so, so, so powerless to do anything about it. It's so big, I can't do anything. And David says, you know what? I can't change some things, but that's not the same thing as being completely powerless over everything. And so I have a choice, and I'm going to use that choice, and I'm going to put myself in the best place that I can to defeat the army. And if you find yourself in a difficult place right now, I think it's helpful to remember that you have this tool, you have this powerful tool called choice. And yes, maybe financially or maybe relationally, things are not going well. But here's, here's this key thing that David realizes. So things aren't going well here, but you have a choice to make something over here a little bit better. If maybe you've discovered this. When you're going through a difficult time, you can go with exercise or run, right? Which for me is one of those difficult moments, right? Because I still struggle with that husky thing I mentioned earlier, right? But that I can go and exercise and lift weights. And somehow it makes me feel better about what's happening over here that I have no control over. Have you ever experienced that? It's like you go do something over here that impacts something over here. And it's because you're making a choice over here that, that reminds you that you still have control over your life. And it makes a difference. That's what you see David doing is choice. And it's so subtle, but you, can't, you don't want to miss it because it makes a difference. The next thing you see, verse 3 and 4, is that you see that David, Saul creeps up, and it says, David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, this is the, the 2 and 3, both are wrapped up in these verses. So David has men around him. This is really, again, very simple. We can miss it. In the midst of one of the most difficult, overwhelming times in David's life, I mean, imagine your father-in-law has mobilized 3,000 men to kill you. Right? This isn't like a, a hard work conversation because somebody didn't turn a report in on time. And you got to, you know, bring that up. Or someone lied to you and you, you want to confront it. This is, my father-in-law is trying to kill me and he's mobilized a huge army to do so. David's not isolated in that. David's not by himself. David has men around him. David has found the second practice 
of community. He had people with him that were with him. And that's the key point. Many of us are surrounded by people every single day, but we don't have people with us who are for us. And that's huge. Because people can't share your burdens if you don't share your burdens. And most of us are really good about trying to keep like our lives are completely together. David knows his life is a hot mess. They all know that David's life is a hot mess. They're in it together. And there's something powerfully relieving about sitting down with someone who is able to listen to you. Not fix it. Listen and share the burden with you. And that's what David is doing here. He has these men, but there's even something else. I mean, like, Jesus himself does this. One of the first acts of him starting his ministry, that last three years that culminates in that Easter event that we talk about, is Jesus goes and gathers a group with him. He builds in community for the journey. And this is something that, whether it's Lord of the Rings or whether it's friends or how I met your mother, all of them are pointing to that we need people with us who are for us. And David has that. And if you find yourself in a difficult place, do you have that? Because if you're carrying it together, you can carry it a lot further. But you also see this very distinct word, his men, which is the third thing is that David has attracted people to himself. That these, these guys have gathered around David, and David stands out in stark contrast to Saul. So you have these two leaders, David and Saul. Saul, says in verse 1, has, has left pursuing the enemy, has taken 3,000 men and routed them to chase after David. Now, here's the thing. In ancient times, you didn't stop pursuing an enemy. You defeated your enemy. And then once you defeated your enemy, you would then run through the enemy's villages and you would burn them, you would pillage them, you would destroy them to make sure that no one would threaten you again. As barbaric as that sounded, that was their M.O. for taking out an enemy. And the writer of, of 1 Samuel gives us this clue that Saul is incredibly selfish as a leader because he stops pursuing a legitimate enemy to the nation of Israel to go and pursue someone who is not. And by doing so, by taking 3,000 men away from the pursuit of a legitimate enemy to chase after David, what happens is now his entire nation, their wives, their children, their homes, their businesses, are now all under threat for an army that can now attack them. And why has he left this army completely? open to go and attack his nation because he's chasing a teenager who he's jealous of. And he's got 3,000 men to do it. And in the midst of his insecurity and selfishness, you see that contrasted with David, who throughout his life and throughout his leadership with his men demonstrates a selflessness. The reason these men risk themselves for David, the reason these men follow David is because David had been practicing not this selfish, self-consumed lifestyle. He was practicing this selfless lifestyle. 
And, and it can almost feel counterintuitive, right? Because when you're in the midst of difficulty, when you're in the midst of heavy pain, pain by nature is very self-consuming, right? You don't want to talk to people. You don't want to be around people. It, you just you kind of get focused on your pain, your struggle, your agony. And in the moment where you feel like the whole world should be there to help you, David does something completely counterintuitive. He helps others. He makes a contribution. And that's his third key practice that David did was he contributed to others. And you can say, well, hold up. Contributing doesn't change your circumstances. No, it doesn't. But it guarantees that your circumstances don't change you and make you bitter. By you choosing to get outside of the cage of me and suffering, you're able to break through that and leverage your life for someone else. And in doing so, you discover, wow, I, I feel better. I'm, that actually helped me. That one of the best things that you can do when you're struggling is to go find someone else who's struggling and help them. No strings attached. Just help them. It doesn't have to be significant. Maybe you're saying, I don't have a lot of finances. I do know there's someone probably financially more or less off than you are. But let's just get, maybe you don't have the finances. But what if you went and you tutored a kid, boys club, girls club, Right? And you just invested in a life that's still being formed, that's still struggling. And you invest in them. You will walk away in the midst of contributing, realizing, I got a different perspective of my circumstances. And it's life-giving. Even this week, I was going through something really difficult, and um, a friend reached out to me. And he said, hey, I want your advice on this. And I was like, I, I wanted to respond. I don't have time to talk to you right now. But I, I know, I'm like, you know what? If I step away from my me world and I step into he, like to his world, and so I did. I, I spent about 30 minutes just processing something with him that made a difference in his life. And I didn't do it for him. I did. But really, I was the one who got the biggest benefit out of it. Because for 30 minutes, I got to take a step away from my problems and help someone with theirs. And it was a game changer for me. It, it totally reoriented my entire day because I focused on someone else and not myself. And then the final thing, and I, I think, well, even maybe you're like, well, what do I do? Give me some options. We, we have an egg drop at the end of this month. 3,000 people registered. Sign up for it. Sign up to serve. Not to go, but to serve. Three hours of focusing on thousands of people and making sure they have a great experience will give you a release from the three hours of focusing on your own circumstances. And if that sounds very self-serving, don't, don't contribute three hours to the egg drop, but contribute three hours somewhere to someone. If you find yourself in the midst of difficult circumstance, it will change you. But in the midst of all that, because one of the things that I love about this church is that we have a spectrum of people all along kind of the faith journey. We have some people who are not sure they believe anything, and they're here because a friend invited them. We have some people who are completely sold out altogether to this Christian journey. And all three of these practices that David's done, no matter where you are in the spectrum, you can use this week. You can apply it. 
But there is one thing that, that is David's true north, the one thing that, that elevates David uh, that I think is the support structure for all the other three. And it's found in verses 5 through 10. You see this interaction where it says that David, like Saul comes in, and it says that he's come to relieve himself, which is the do number two um, in the Hebrew. And, um, and so that's like if you're, if you're a, you don't even have to be a strategist. If you've got a sword and that's your enemy, like it's pretty clear, right? Can't do much about it. And so David, like a ninja, sneaks up behind him in the process of number two. And, um, and he cuts off this tiny corner of his garment. David could have ended his life, but he took this tiny garment and he feels conscious stricken. And he, he goes back to his men and he's like, no, I can't do that. And the guys are like, no, this is the moment. This is what you've been waiting for. He is your enemy. You stab him. Like imagine the stories and the songs we can tell and sing about him in the bathroom and you conquering him. Right? I mean, like how awesome will that be? How humiliating will that be for him? And David says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. And he lets Saul leave and he walks out and he says, Saul, my king, right? I could have ended you today, but I didn't. Because I believe that God has placed you as that king. And I'm not going to circumvent God. I'm not going to violate my character and what I know is right to overthrow you. And David exhibits this character and this confidence. Because here's this, I think, the key thing that David got. David had confidence. He had confidence that even if he didn't kill Saul, that what God had told him previously, that one day you'll be king, would come to pass. What his, what his men exhibit, so all confidence is ultimately rooted in something. What his men demonstrate is hype. They're like, oh, this is it? Mm, take him down. Right? I mean, they're, they, I, I can, they're like jumping up. They're like, oh, Saul's going to be like, oh, and it's going to bam. And they're going to walk out, and Saul's stinking body's going to be thrown down the side of the mountain. They're going to be like, victory. And it, I mean, it's like they play in the fight song. They got the Rocky anthem. This is the hype. This is it. We have arrived. Right? High five. And for many of us, when we get into difficult circumstances, that's how we try to not navigate. We try to like hype ourselves up. We're going to walk in and be like, I got the swagger. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to tell that boss what I really think about him. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so we walk in. But here's the thing. All of us have found ourselves in places when you are completely powerless. And hype does not carry you through. I have had moments as a man where I'm dialing 911 because my daughter can't breathe. And I'm riding in an ambulance to the hospital with her. And I can't hype myself through that. But what David demonstrates is not hype. David demonstrates hope. And your confidence has to be greater than hype. It has to be rooted in something or someone. And that hope can carry you when you can't even carry yourself. That the hope can give you 
life and breath and a will to keep pushing forward when you feel like the entire world just collapsed in front of your face. Here's the beautiful thing about David. That very day, David is in that cave. He writes these words. Because David was a songwriter. And he writes these words. Psalm 57, which is a psalm, a poem, written while David was in the cave. He says, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And when you realize that David is sitting in a dark cave and an army of 3,000 men are riding by that cave and all of a sudden the, the army stops because he, the commander Saul, has to use the bathroom. And David writes the words that it's in the shadow, not of this cave, but of your wings, I find refuge. It's in you, God, that I have hope and I have confidence. And it's these words that he wrote right before all of this happens that gives you the ultimate insight to why David could, could navigate and still make choices could still put himself in community and not use the community to support him, but to actually make a contribution to them. And that David wasn't caught up in hype because he realized his confidence was rooted in something far greater, and it was in the hope of God and his promises. 